Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's one in the pew in front of you. The page number uh, for this passage is 899. And if you don't own a Bible, take that home as a gift from us. Uh, we would like for you to, uh, to have that to be able to use. What will one see when they see the real Jesus? It's likely that all of you in, in your mind <clears throat> have a thought about that, a description about that. Back in uh, 2007, uh, I did a series in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually 2007, 8, and 9, but, uh, and uh, we called that series In Search of the Real Jesus. Now, the reason I called it that is because there are so many versions of Jesus. But the question is never, what do we want Jesus to be? It is never, what does the History Channel say Jesus is or the Discovery Channel or even TBN, those aren't the questions. The question isn't, what do some scholars somewhere say Jesus really is? In fact, in our day, as in every day, there are even churches that are giving conflicting views of who Jesus is. We often in our worship sing uh, hymns by Keith and Kristen Getty. One of our favorites by uh, Keith and Stuart Townend is In Christ Alone. In that hymn, one of the verses says this, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Amazingly accurate with what the scripture says. And yet the Gettys uh, and Stuart Townen were told by a denomination from this country, we would like to include in Christ alone in our new hymn book. But we want to change those words where it talks about the wrath of God being satisfied. To their credit, the Gettys and Stuart Townend said, no, 
you may not use our hymn if you're going to change that truth from the Scripture. So here's the thing. If, if churches are giving different views of, of Jesus, where, where do we go? How do we find out what is the accurate view? Who is this Jesus? Who will we see if we really see Jesus? And so that's why every week we go to the Word of God. That's the only place. And most specifically, in this case, the Gospels, although Jesus is displayed throughout all of Scripture. And today we're going to see how he burst the bubble of some who thought they knew who the real Jesus was, but he told them the accurate picture. So let's read beginning in verse 20 in John chapter 12. It says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. This would be the Passover. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it uh, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together.
or like the, <clears throat> the Greeks of long ago, we, we would see Jesus. And so will you, by your word and by your spirit, show him to us? We ask this in his very name. Amen. So we see in this case that uh, some Greeks want to see Jesus. They may have been uh, Greeks who worshiped the God of Israel. If that was the case, then uh, here they are for the feast. As Greeks, they would not be permitted into the inner parts of the temple, they would have in, instead to, uh, they would have been limited to be outside of that dividing wall. They would have been in what was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, what had just happened in the court of the Gentiles? Well, what had happened, and we, we don't see this in the Gospel of John, but we have uh, four parallel Gospels, uh, three other Gospels. And so in uh, Mark, we see what happened was a cleansing of the temple. This would be the second time he had cleansed the temple. The first time was recorded in John earlier. So where would the cleansing of the temple have been? It would have been in the court of the Gentiles because that's where all the merchandising went on. And so it's very possible that, that these Greeks that came for, for Passover would have seen him come in and cleanse the temple. We know what took place there would have seen that and then said to each other, oh, we need to go meet this guy. We need to find out who this is, what this is about. And if that was the case, they came to seek him. But what they were going to find out was that he was probably nothing like other people were saying the Messiah would be, and maybe even what they had in their own mind. And so the, the question gets to Jesus, and we're actually going to look at this a little bit more next week as we see a lot of applications for us in terms of ministry and so on. But the question gets to Jesus, you know, we would see Jesus, we want to meet him, and, and so on, and they are, they are brought to Jesus, and here's his answer. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What kind of answer is that? Now, to some people's ears in hearing that, they would have said, yes, 
Now he's going to take over. Now he'll drive out those filthy Romans that are oppressing us. Finally, he will be that king that we are hoping for. And then Jesus goes on to explain that his glorification is unlike anyone would expect. It's completely different. Not even on the same radar of many of the people and even some of his closest followers. So what was his glorification going to look like? Well, the first part of it, his death. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he, he introduces, he talks about his uh, death in such a way that he's basically explaining that, you know, even my death, we, we have to think about my death differently than you're probably thinking about death. So here's the illustration. Uh, for a seed, if a farmer chooses to leave uh, his grain or seed in, in the barn or uh, in, in, in sacks or however he gets his grain, if he chooses uh, to, to leave it there, it will remain infertile. But if he scatters it in the field, it will perish and die. But then it will grow and he will receive fruit from it. That's the kind of death. Jesus is talking about. So basically what we see is that the, the father has delivered his son to death in order that he would bear fruit. Now that's different again than most would think. You're going to be glorified? Why would you start with death? That's not how we would figure it out. So how does it work? Well, with Jesus... Here's how it works. Because God is holy, sin is an offense to him. And it deserves death. The standard of having a relationship with God is to be as holy as he is. That's the only way to have a relationship with him. The problem is that people sin. And so if, if people are left to their own efforts, they will never reach God, no matter how hard they work, no matter how good their efforts are, because they can never be as holy as God is. 
one commentator wrote, how terribly dark, how terribly black must that guilt be for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must that weight of human sin be which made Jesus groan. So here's the plan, God's plan. Since, since we are in a hopeless estate if left to our own abilities to reach God. The plan is that Jesus would come and become man and live a perfect life. That he would be perfectly holy and live that life that was impossible for us to be able to live. And because of that, God's plan was for him to be able to pay the penalty for our sins because he didn't have to pay a penalty for his sin because he had no sin. He was perfectly holy. And he paid that penalty on the cross. That's where the words from that hymn come from. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. So that's, that's the death. So he dies on the cross as our substitute in our place. In other words, he is our substitutionary atonement. That's the theological word. So if we receive him, we receive the benefits of his death. That's why his death has to be looked at differently. It was because of his death, see that, that colonel died so that there would be much fruit. And if you're trusting in Christ alone today, you are a part of that fruit. But unlike anyone would think, Jesus' glorification will take place because of his death. So Jesus says, look, in, in describing who he is, he says, I, I, I've, it's time for me to be glorified. And then he introduces his death as that first part of that. And then he continues for those that would see Jesus, those, those Greeks that were there, and others who were looking on. And we see him following hard after the Father. Look at verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. What does it mean, troubled? It's way too easy for us just to, to, to read over that because we've read that before and we mustn't. We've got to stop. We've got to, we've got to figure this out. Here is the God-man 
who has so powerfully displayed his oneness with the Father, with the God of the universe. Here is the one who spoke with such authority, and now he says, my soul is troubled. Now I gotta tell you, I misspeak all the time. And anyone that uses a lot of words like I do or make their living with words, you're going to misspeak. You're going to say, say words you didn't mean to say or give a context or, 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 or something and not, just choose the wrong word. But Jesus never misspoke. When he used a word, it was always the perfect word. And so when we, we see a word that Jesus uses, we've got to pay attention. We've got to say, why? why would he say that and what does he mean by that? So let me tell you about the word Jesus chose to use here. It's translated, my, my, my soul is, is troubled. The word means a revulsion. I'm revolted by this or a horror it's the same word he uses in, uh, uh, back in, in chapter 11 when, uh, about his soul being troubled about Lazarus' death. It's the same word that he will use uh, in chapter 13 when he's about to talk about Judas who's going to betray him. And here he says that's where he is. He talks about his death and he says, my soul is troubled. What was he saying that his soul was horrified by in terms of what he was facing? Now we know he was about to face unjust trials. We know that he was going to be beaten and, and uh, tortured. We know that he would die a horrible death on a cross one that anyone would dread. And yet we also know that, that many people down through history have bravely faced very awful things and even had peace in their soul as they faced those things. So what was it that troubled his soul. Well, I think it was all of those things he knew what he would face. But his greatest pain on the cross was just what we've been talking about. It was his father pouring out on him while he was on the cross all of the pain of hell for all of his people for all time. That was why his soul was troubled. He knew that he was going to be, he was going to be that laser point where all of that would fall on him while he was on the cross. And as awful as the physical pain was, it, 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 it didn't hold a candle 
to, to that pain. And that's why his soul was troubled. He knew he would have the feeling of forsakenness from the Father. And so then he goes on and says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a rhetorical question. It's like, what can I say to that horror? And he answers it with a fact. And that is he knew his calling He knew what his calling was. Verse 27, the second part. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So his soul is troubled. And here's how he begins to deal with it. For this purpose, I have come to this. This is my very destiny. This is my calling, one commentator says, he was saying, it, it, it's hor- horrible to me now. I see it in all of its, its blackness, in all its fullness as it awaits me, and I wish I didn't have to endure it, but I know it's my Father's will for me. This is why I'm here. This is why I came to this hour. And you know what? Even for you, for, for me, for any of us, understanding Our calling makes all the difference in the world. Sometimes someone will very kindly and empathetically say to me because something, you know, something I have to face as a pastor, someone will say, oh, I I wouldn't want to have to face that. And and many of you have heard me give this response. Well, that's just part of it. Part of what? Well, it's part of the calling. It's part of it. But that, that helps me even with my minor little trivial things I have to face in knowing if that's, if that's part of it. Then we see in his following heart after God, he, he responds in faith, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. And by the way, that's always, if you're ever wondering what to pray, I don't know what to pray, you can always pray this. It's always an appropriate prayer. Father, glorify your name. That's what he asks him to do. It wasn't... Father, glorify my name. It was glorify your name, Father. And so when Jesus did his work of paying for sin on the cross, the Father would be glorified. And here's the bottom line. Jesus loved the Father being glorified more than he dreaded the horror of the cross. Did you get it? He he loved the idea of the Father being glorified even more than that which was troubling his soul. 
And then we see the father communing with him. Verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said uh, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. By the way, I was working on this this week when we were having thunder outside. I thought, yeah, I, I get it, you know. Others said, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This is one of the three times uh, recorded in the New Testament that the Father spoke from heaven. Each time, it was commending Jesus in some way, at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and, and here, indicating, yes, yes, I will glorify my name in what you are doing. So look at the results of Jesus' work. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So here's what he's saying. He goes to the cross. And, and, and when he achieves his victory on the cross, when he walks out of that grave, this world will no longer be left to Satan. Don't, don't underestimate that ever, ever. Satan's time was over. He's still fighting to this day, but he has lost, and when Jesus comes back, the defeat will be final. That will be that. That's what we have to look forward to when he comes back. But he's already shown us by his victory on the cross that victory is an absolutely sure thing. So he talks about the cross, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And then John comments, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this is the cross that was followed by the grave, which was followed by the resurrection, which is followed by the ascension, and he would be glorified forever because he had completed his work of redemption. Now when he says, I, I will draw all people to myself, we need to understand. Kent Hughes, I think, uh, puts it well in this way. Christ was not saying that the whole world would be saved. We know he couldn't have been saying that because the whole world hasn't been saved. It can't be that. So he says Christ was not saying that the whole world would be saved, but that all who will be saved will be saved by looking to and relying on him. So he's saying that's how. That's how they'll be saved. And then we see, in terms of application, how can you, 34, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so that brings us back to what the, the Greeks were searching for. It's not about what you think he is. It cannot be about what you want him to be. 
the only question that matters is who he really is. Because if he is, is really who this says he is, if he is really who he just described himself as, if he did what he said he did, then the only right response is to receive him as Lord and Savior. That's the only acceptable response. You don't have to do that. It's just the only acceptable to God response. I don't know if you noticed when God spoke, the crowd that stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered, others said an angel has spoken to him. Some heard what he said and some just heard a rumbling. And I know, I know that's very possible this morning. Some of you, this was clear as a bell. And to others, it it was all muddled and it was just a a rumbling. You might as well have just been listening to a, a train go by. What about you? In this passage, in this gospel, in this book, we hear God speaking. Do you hear? Do you? If so, then come to him in faith. His soul was troubled for you. That's the real Jesus. Let's pray. There is nothing, Lord, we can do to repay you. And yet, you simply say, believe. We thank you. Give us hearts able to hear you. Give us the faith to believe and to trust in you alone. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.